This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is CYKIAE. There are lots of good reasons why a man and woman should get married rather than shacking up or just randomly having sex. Here are four of the biggies. One, if you have children and you, the biological parents, aren't married, there's a really good chance that you're going to ruin the lives of your children. It should be a human right for a child to have the parents who are married and living together with their child. If you're a woman, being married is what you really want in most cases. If you're a man, you really need to get married. You might not think so, but all of the science is against you if that's what you think. And finally, financially, socially, and in almost every other way imaginable, you and the whole society you live in will be more prosperous and happy. There are always exceptions, but this isn't something you should want to gamble with. And one outstanding feminist backs me up. Well, probably, more realistically, I'm backing her up. Her name is Louise Perry. In 2022, she had her book published. The book has what seems an amazing and unlikely title for a feminist author, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. The standard path for the feminist movement in Australia, sadly we almost always copy and follow what is happening in America, however inapplicable to our situation, had been set back in the early 70s, particularly associated with Gough Whitlam as he headed into power as the leader of the then opposition Labour Party. Soon to become the Prime Minister of Australia in 1972, it was time. In the book Women and Whitlam Revisiting the Revolution, one of the contributors, Iola Matthews, put into words the feeling that many of the women in the women's liberation movement said at the time, for some of us, Whitlam was the new messiah. I have to say that he accomplished what would make comparing him to Satan more appropriate Dr. Elizabeth Reed tells the trajectory that the early women's liberation movement 
with the sexual revolution well and truly underway since the pill had been authorised by the Federal Drug Authority in America in 1963 was set on in the 2023 book Women and Whitlam. She said, We had to live our revolution ourselves at the same time as fighting for it. It was not a case of reform versus revolution, but of working out how we could create a revolution that would unfold alongside our reforms, assisting us in determining which reforms might be more effective and increasing their effectiveness. The first thing many of us did was to cease to be ladylike. We started swearing. We insisted on our space in public bars and restaurants. We started drinking boldly and doing whatever else was considered at that time to be unladylike behaviour, but which we experienced as energising and transformative, as living our lives more freely. To this day I cannot control my swearing, but I vividly remember the sense of freedom that it gave me. So the aim for women, as she and her sisters saw it, was for the women to butch up, to be at least as masculine as the most masculine construction worker in behaviour, mannerism and speech. Given the physical bodies of women and their built-in behaviour pattern, as I discussed in part 12 of this series, the question is, was this how women should go about obtaining the changes for themselves in society that they wanted? to achieve the sort of society that they would be happy to live in? Was it true that they wanted to be the same as men? Because it seems like they have succeeded in getting that at a terrible price to women. Contrast this 1970s goal of Dr Elizabeth Reed, which she didn't walk back from in that 2023 book Women and Whitlam, with what the controversial British philosopher and writer Kathleen Stock, says in the foreword to Louise Perry's book about what Louise Perry has to say. Perry's background as a journalist, commentator and campaigner against rough sex criminal defences perfectly places her to tackle these issues, and she does so with characteristic style and fearlessness. Her book does several things that are unusual for a modern feminist text. It refuses the easy wins of the cool girl feminist, swimming against the pink tide of sex-positive vacuity to spell out some uncomfortable truths. It is uninterested in liberal feminist buzzwords such as freedom and equality, focusing instead on women's needs and well-being, independently from a consideration of men. Whether you ultimately agree or disagree with Perry's analysis, the book takes the interests of women deadly seriously and carves out a space for them to talk properly about the costs of the sexual culture in which they must sink or swim. It's essential for the well-being of young women that we do this, and we should all be grateful to Perry for advancing this important conversation. In part six of this series, I talked about women having sex like men. That doesn't work for the overwhelming majority of women, 
In fact, it's a disaster for them. But it works, of course, perfectly for most men. Sexual revolution saw all of the wildest dreams of the most sexually active men become reality. The feminists objectified women for men. Just look at the monster erotic stage performances by women spawned from the sexual revolution, such as Taylor Swift, Katy Perry, Madonna and Cher. In part 7 of this series, I told you how the feminists had torn down all of the gates that had served women so well for thousands of years. They could have aimed to have mended the gates, make modifications, but no, they went for total obliteration, replaced the tried and true with something that had never been tried before. The feminists promised women utopia, and that's what they got. Utopia is a place that doesn't exist. Usually when it arrives, it looks more like a nightmare. And that's where the sexual revolution has taken women today, says Louise Perry. Well, that's my take on what she has to say. Fittingly, the last chapter of Louise Perry's book on the sexual revolution is called Marriage. After she's finished laying bare the unimaginably terrible world that the feminists have created for women to live in today, she doesn't want to leave her women readers and I have to say the majority of male readers as well, despairing that there's no hope for a better society, then the society we have today from the sexual revolution. So, is she right? Is there any hope for women who are the products of the huge mistakes of the 60s and onwards right up to today? Not to say for men, whether they know they need rescuing or not. Louise Perry muses... But how to persuade men into, if not chastity, sexual continence? I've written earlier in this book about what I've called the cad and dad modes of male sexuality, with the former oriented towards casual sex and the latter towards commitment. Although there are some men who are innately and resolutely focused on one or other of these modes, it's far more common for men to sit somewhere in the middle, moving between the two depending on their age and social context. Having almost reached the end of this book, I hope I've managed to persuade you that the CAD mode of male sexuality is bad for women en masse. The vast majority of women find it difficult to detach emotion from sex, meaning that an encounter with a cad who doesn't call is likely to leave a woman feeling distressed, even if she attempts to repress those feelings. Women did not evolve to treat sex as meaningless, and trying to pretend otherwise does not end well. Then there are the physical consequences of sex, which are inherently asymmetrical, with the danger and pain of an unwanted pregnancy born and entirely by the woman. Modern forms of contraception are mostly effective, in, enough at least, to have transformed sexual relations in the post-1960s era, but they still regularly fail. And whatever you think about the ethical status of the fetus, we should all be able to agree that an abortion is not a good thing for a woman to go through, given such medical risks as uterine damage or sepsis, not to mention the emotional consequences 
which are not trivial. Women following the guidelines of Dr. Elizabeth Reed, which are the guidelines that have been official feminist doctrine for yonks, would be living what Louise Perry calls the cant mode of male sexuality and, beyond belief, which liberal feminism encourages women to follow. Louise Perry says, though, that this isn't what liberation for women really should look like. She says that the males, modelling themselves on the late Hugh Hefner, more than welcomed the sexually liberated woman. She says that the males, modelling themselves on the late Hugh Hefner, more than welcomed the sexually liberated woman. She says that those men are delighted to find themselves with a buffet of young women to feast on, all of them apparently willing to suffer their mistreatment without complaint. Looked at in the starkest terms, I can't help but agree with the dark pronouncement my grandmother made when I told her about the thesis of this book. Women have been conned. Louise Perry says that modern feminists need, really need, to deter men from the cad mode. But she also points out that in the current sexual culture, the one that Dr. Elizabeth Reed helped to shape, and in the 2023 book Women and Whitlam is still proud of, feminists encourage everyone, men and women, to behave in the cad mode, even though women are the biggest losers from that. Dr. Elizabeth Reed is apparently blind and can't see that our society today has been reduced to chaos by doing what she and the other female revolutionaries manning the barracks demanded in the 70s. They wanted action. When did they want it? Now. Louise Perry rightly says that things as they stand now will have to change to unwind the calamitous situation that those women have created. In order to change the incentive structures, we would need a technology that discourages short-termism in male sexual behaviour, protects the economic interests of mothers, and creates a stable environment for the raising of children. And we do already have such a technology, even if it is old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure. It's called monogamous marriage. Before I start sounding too quixotic, I should make one thing clear. Lifelong monogamy is not our natural state. Only about 15% of societies in the anthropological record have been monogamous. Monogamy has to be enforced through laws and customs, and even within societies in which it is deeply embedded, plenty of people are defiant. To date, monogamy has been dominant in only two types of society, small-scale groups beset by serious environmental privation and some of the most complex civilizations to have ever existed, including our own. Almost all others have been polygamous, permitting high-status men to take multiple wives. But while the monogamous marriage model may be relatively unusual, it is also spectacularly successful. When monogamy is imposed on a society, it tends to become richer. It has lower rates of both child abuse and domestic violence, since conflict between co-wives tends to generate both. 
birth rates and crime rates both fall, which encourages economic development. And wealthy men denied the opportunity to devote their resources to acquiring more wives, instead invest elsewhere in property, businesses, employees and other productive endeavours. Thus, it seems, the solution to what anthropologists have called the puzzle of monogamous marriage. How is it that a marriage system that does not suit the interests of the most powerful members of society, high-status men, has nevertheless come to be institutionalised across so much of the world? The answer is that although monogamy is less satisfactory for these men, it produces wealthy, stable societies that survive. One of the thoughts that crosses my mind is, this doesn't sound like an act of the notorious patriarchy, giving up immense power over women. Let's look at how this happened more closely. We rushed into the male-female revolution brought about by the Family Law Act without thinking. It's been an almost terminal disaster for our society 50 years later, we can see the burning ruins of our civilization where the whole legal structure has completely neutralized monogamous marriage to the detriment of women especially. Take the flip side of what Louise Perry has just said are the benefits from having a society where monogamous marriage is the way for men and women to live together rather than shacking up. In our present society where monogamous marriage isn't the norm or even encouraged, our society has become poorer. High crime rates, youth crime rates rampant from fatherless families, drugs, suicide, mental health issues. So how did a society that more strictly pursued monogamous marriage come about? Louise Perry is an atheist. So like Dr. Vold, the atheist science I talk about at the beginning of every program, who refused to believe in God, although he's the only explanation for the fact that there's life, Louise Perry can see the really weird thing that happened back in later Roman times and uniquely in the West, with a few small exceptions, of the institution of monogamous marriage. That's where men voluntarily gave up their undoubted physical power over women. Louise is stumped for a reason why that happened. How did that massive genie of sheer male physical power over women get put back into the bottle? Louise Perry won't give the answer to this, which is God. You need to follow a few verses from the Bible to arrive at that answer. Start with John 1.3, which puts everything into context. It says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So it happened that from beyond the universe, first the Jews, and then far more widely to the Christians, that God, who created everything, literally everything, told the Jews, his chosen people, how they had to run their society if it was going to be as successful as possible. One of his rules, going back to the time of Moses, 1500 years before Christ, was monogamous marriage marriage between a man and a woman, as told in the book of John 10, 6-8. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And that marriage is, as Mark 10.9 tells us, what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. God's marriage is for life, not like Louise Perry says, for something less than life. So God's marriage unites the two very differing characteristics of men and women that I've talked about in part 12 and part 1-2 of this series into a new person, a whole person, created in the marriage. So in the institution of marriage, the Bible, God put into place something that ran against what was the norm in all of the rest of the world, where women were subservient to men. God revealed that in his design, there was complete equality between men and women. St. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's take a pause on what Louise Perry has to say and try to find a reason why on earth men gave up their power. As I said earlier, this doesn't sound like the patriarchy that the feminists are always on about. A great answer to that question was given by Glenn Scrivener in an interview he did with John Anderson, former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. Glenn Scrivener is an ordained minister in the Church of England. He's an evangelist who preaches Christ through writing, speaking and online media. He also directs the evangelistic ministry Speak Life. He's written several books, including The Air We Breathe. And he has this to say about monogamy. Well, we've got the clash of two different sexual revolutions going on. Um, when you say the sexual revolution, most people think of the 1960s, the swinging 60s. But historians like Kyle Harper will, will say that the real sexual revolution that has still built the moral foundations of the West happened 1900 years earlier. And in the early church, here come some Christians who are taking very seriously what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, in which he absolutely obliterates the double standard in, in terms of sex. In the ancient world, there was an unapologetic double standard. You know, elite men could possess the bodies of anyone they pleased whenever they wanted to. And, and so this was a terrible culture for women and children and slaves and prostitutes and concubines. And, and, and Jesus absolutely abolishes the double standard by saying men must be as restricted as women had always been expected to be. And so they must be chased outside of marriage and faithful within marriage. And, and that kind of brought an equality to the sexes and it tamed and restrained male sexuality, um, which when it runs wild is one of the most dangerous forces in, in the world. But somehow, uh, in, in the words of uh, evolutionary biologist uh, Joseph Henry, he said the church reached down and grabbed men by the testicles. You know, and, and he was basically saying he, they restrained and trained male sexuality and the church and its sexual revolution absolutely transformed the world out of all recognition. Joseph Henrik's book is called The Weirdest People in the World, and he, he traces pretty much all the psychological peculiarity and the prosperity of the West to the Christian sexual ethic of the early centuries. In Louise Perry's book, she says that a monogamous marriage system is successful, in part because it pushes men away from CAD mode, particularly when premarital sex is also prohibited.
In a culture where monogamous marriage is the way to get a girl, if a man wants to have sex in a way that's socially acceptable, he has to make himself marriageable. That means holding down a good job and setting up a household suitable for raising children. He has to tame himself, in other words. Fatherhood then has a further biological inbuilt taming effect on men. When men are involved in the care of their young children, their testosterone levels drop alongside their aggression and sex drive. I discussed all of that in part one of this series. A society made up of men who are acting in accordance with the monogamous rules for society is a better society for everyone to live in. Men, women and children. How? Louise Perry says that there was a wisdom to the traditional model in which the father was primarily responsible for caring for children at home. That model allows mothers and children to be physically together and at the same time be financially supported. In an age of labour-saving devices such as washing machines and gas boilers, it's become less time-consuming to run a household and so more feasible for mothers of young children to do some paid work outside of the home, as most married women do today. But a single mum attempting to play the traditional roles of mother and father simultaneously, as single mothers are forced to do, is close to impossible. I would say impossible for most women. This idea is again reinforced by the choices that the sexes make when looking for a partner, as Jordan Peterson tells us in my next program. Thanks for listening into this program, CYKIAE. If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast on my CYKIAE, Spotify, Apple, Google, and many other podcast sites. Just look at my program details on CAN's FM 89.1 for clickable links. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Gafcon Northern Hope Anglican Church at the Cairns and District Junior Estedford Hall, 67 Greenslopes Street, Edge Hill, some Sunday at 9am. If you liked this program, you should definitely listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone, also available as a podcast on those same sites. Search Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close brackets.